You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome on this beautiful spring morning to another edition of Radio Therapy. Thank you very much to Radio Marinara for waking everybody up in preparation for our show, which is going to be jam-packed. So full of important news and tidbits of information that we don't even have time for music this morning. We have with us the always unflappable and imperturbable Kent running the machines. And as well as myself, Prey Partum, we have SK, who will be talking about zombie movies, which is a great topic at the very end of our show. We have Dr Moto, who will be exploring his own experience as a patient as well as a practitioner, which is an important change of perspective, I think, and one which we could all benefit from understanding. And we also have Dr Vyam Sharma, who will talk about exploding pacemakers. We also have a very special guest. Um, we have Lady Gaga in the studio today, <laughs> covered in glitter from the George Michael special evening that she attended several days ago. Um, she cannot be uh, identified using her actual name because she does in fact work on a hotline for LGBTIQ uh, peer support. And we'll be talking to her a little bit about the impact of the same-sex marriage discussion that's been occurring over the airwaves and in person throughout Victoria and the rest of Australia this morning. So welcome, everybody. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. Um, I think we should probably start with a doctor, doctor and a little bit of catch-up. Doctor, doctor, give me the news, I got a bad case of loving you. and we can all just have a bit of a chat. So I was going to talk very briefly about the stuff that I've been looking at in the news recently. So there was an article in JAMA Psychiatry just a couple of weeks ago which talked a little bit about um, the presence of lithium in drinking water, which occurs naturally. It's a salt which leaches into the groundwater from minerals um, uh, surrounding the groundwater and it occurs in drinking water throughout the world in different concentrations. There was a fabulous study that was done in Denmark, where else? (laughs) which demonstrated that people who lived in places where there was a higher concentration of lithium in the drinking water seemed to have lower rates of dementia. It was a pretty good study, actually. They used a population-based nested case control model where they had 73,000 people with uh, dementia, a new diagnosis of dementia, and matched those with age and sex and location-matched controls, about 10 for for each sufferer. And what they seemed to see was that um, people who lived in an area with a high level of lithium in the drinking water, so about sort of between 15 and 27 um, micrograms per litre, were actually much less likely, in fact, 17% less likely to be suffering from dementia. I might first go to you, SK, to see what you think about that particular article. I think it makes complete sense, actually, and it builds on some earlier observations that have been done, again, in the Scandinavian territories, where I think they've got very good databases about drug prescription uh, use. And there was some work from uh, a few years ago now that showed that if you had filled at least more than one script in your lifetime for lithium, which is widely prescribed as a, as a drug for mood stabilisation in bipolar disorder, you're less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. And sort of biologically, this makes sense. There's, there's two proteins that are involved in Alzheimer's disease. One is the amyloid protein. The other is a protein called tau, T-A-U. 
And uh, when tau goes rogue in Alzheimer's disease, it becomes hyperphosphorylated. It gets a phosphate group attached to it. And this hyperphosphorylation occurs via an enzyme called GSK, glycogen synthetase kinase, which has a number of biological functions. If you want to prevent the hyperphosphorylation of tau and therefore help prevent Alzheimer's disease, one of the therapeutic targets, therefore, is to try and inhibit this enzyme. And low-dose lithium is an inhibitor of GSK. SK. So these sort of epidemiological findings do make a lot of sense. And we, and we joke from time to time about adding various substances to the drinking water, but uh, the prevention of Alzheimer's disease is a very worthwhile goal. And because the prevalence sort of doubles every five years with age, if we can delay the onset of dementia across the population by as little as five years, we can halve the overall prevalence. So maybe adding lithium to the drinking water is a worthwhile endpoint. Maybe it is, although we have a, a vehement um, counter view from Viom sitting just next door. What do you think, Viom? Oh, it's probably vehement. It's probably not very intelligent. But when I first heard about this, it awakened in me this conspiracy theory that I didn't know existed. My first thought was, what are we going to do next? Microchip people? We're going to fingerprint people as they, you know, chicken for work? Um, but then, you know, you said this word that, I mean, it says probably more about me than anything just at the start of the, the intro of this, which is that it's a naturally occurring salt in water, which makes me go, ah, well, I guess, you know, it's not so bad. But we already, I guess, do add a few things to water. We add fluoride, which most people don't have too much of an issue with. Yeah, well, look at the controversies around that. You know, yeah. that, that's viewed as well, by certain fringe elements, I've got to say, uh, yeah. as having a number of adverse health effects. And there's some contradictory literature around that. But, you know, lithium is not uh, necessarily a safe substance just because it's natural, you know, particularly in older people. Uh, it can cause kidney and heart problems. And, uh, yeah, the idea of adding anything to the, uh, to the, to the drinking water as, as means of mind control it sits in uh, train a whole range of paranoid fantasies. Well, that's the thing. And you said mind control, which is a, the really key phrase there because it, the, I guess the idea of this medication when it's used in bipolar is to, to have some sense of control or alteration in the... the the way we we think that we think well not not in the way that we think but in in brain control or preserving brain right. health might be a more charitable way to look at it uh, you know lithium doesn't change the way you think in uh, the yeah. levels that it's present in groundwater but uh, if it has a neuroprotective effect that might be a good thing well i guess that's going to be the question which is how much do we, do we need to put in to have no kind of side effects i suppose are there people who are maybe at risk can we just Added to their Evian, I don't know. Well, look, I think the the lithium levels in groundwater they're nowhere near pharmacological levels. You might even argue that they're homeopathic. You know, they represent a significant dilution compared to what we'd prescribe in pharmacology. But uh, the doses of lithium that are necessary to 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 inhibit this enzyme that's involved in Alzheimer's disease are you know much lower than what would be used in uh, treatment of bipolar disorder, for example. It's true, and yet there are a few studies which use lithium in micro doses. To to try to prevent the progression of Alzheimer's disease. So they have some long-term studies where they use sort of tiny, tiny, tiny doses of lithium and it seemed to be effective over the course of about 18 months to two years in preventing the progression of cognitive decline. Yeah, those studies are interesting. They date back many years now and they've, they've not been replicated. Nobody's tried to replicate them and one of the arguments against why, uh, about why that might be is that, you know, lithium's a natural substance and it's off-patent. So if you want to invoke conspiracy theories, Viom, have a, have a look at the role of Big Pharma in, uh, in suppressing uh, cheap and readily available interventions at the expense of multi-billion dollar drug development. I'm not going to sleep for nights now. I'm just going to be <laughs> so hard. That's right. 
Okay, anybody else have anything that they wanted to talk about with catch-up before we run on to our first uh, special guest today? I wanted to bring up um, findings from uh, the inaugural um, College of um, Australian um, College of General Practice um, Health of the Nation survey um, and finding results that came out only very, very recently within the past two to three weeks. Um, and it's a um, very comprehensive survey um, that took place amongst 1,300 um, general practitioners in Australia, but also incorporated findings from the Mabel study, um, which is the um, University of Melbourne balancing life and practice survey that have been running amongst medical students and doctors for almost a decade now. I remember filling in these surveys and they do them in waves and um, it'll come through in the mail every three to six months and I would uh, diligently fill them out because I know how hard it is to run long t- longitudinal um, prospective surveys. So they incorporated findings from that as well and being biased, being a psychiatrist, I only wanted to emphasise a couple of key points and that is that um, of all the reasons that patients consult general practitioners in this country, of all the reasons, the top t- top ranked reason is for psychological psychological consultations by a fair margin um the second reason being um respiratory um ailments so you know coughs colds flus we were talking about last week and the third being musculoskeletal and i think these findings um were quite surprising to um a lot of people in fact and i see kent waving up his arm because he's got a sprained wrist um and i think it really emphasizes Um, the importance of um, mental health provision and mental health literacy amongst all health practitioners, not just psychiatrists. The second um, key finding I wanted to punch out is um, they also asked the survey participants what they feel are the main emerging health concerns in Australia. The number one ranked health concern is mental health problems. Very true. Uh, And I've just come back. um, The reason I'm a little bit wired today is because I spent all yesterday in a huge symposium for GPs uh, from the research centre that I work in, talking about perimenopausal depression, premenstrual dysphoric disorder and uh, postpartum psychosis, amongst other things. And it does seem as though that's what GPs are really interested in. I could ask you uh, beyond, but actually we have to run on because we've got such a packed program today. I really want to introduce our special guest, Lady Gaga, after this break. The 2017 Melbourne Fringe Festival has landed, popping up all over Melbourne in theatres, pubs and lounge rooms and turning everything into art. From theatre, comedy and puppetry to specialist talks, photography and installation art, there's something for everyone. With daily ticket discounts, 440 events to choose from and only two and a half weeks to cram them in. Check melbournefringe.com.au for details. It's all over on the 1st of October. Melbourne Fringe, Triple R Sponsors. Hello again, everyone. It's Peripartum here at Radiotherapy, and I'm on air with Dr. Moto, Dr. Sharma, and SK, and we're talking with Lady Gaga, who uh, participates in an LGBTIQ hotline here in Melbourne. Who would have thought she had time <laughs> in amongst her packed schedule? Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Tell me, what's Switchboard? So Switchboard is a um, LGB it's a service for the LGBTIQ community um, and allies. So it's a peer-run service. So people who are calling um, in for our phone counsellors are um, reassured that the person on the uh, other end of the line will um, be familiar with at least parts of their story and is uh, similarly identified within the community. Mm-hmm. So we're not a professional 
counsellors or um, mental health practitioners or anything of that nature. It's a peer support service. Okay. And I guess in the context of the debate that's been occurring in the broader community about same-sex marriage, it's really mm. uh, useful for me to have a sense of how that has had an impact on on people who are um, LGBTIQ identified. Are you able to talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. It's um, it's been quite an increase in the volume of calls that um, have been received by Switchboard. I think um, a conservative estimate is about 30% increase in calls. Wow. Um, and as a result of that increase, um, Switchboard has had to take on 16 extra counsellors. Um, yeah. And you guys work just in Victoria, right? So uh, yes. So Switchboard is just in Victoria, but um, part of a broader um, organisation called QLife. So um, the hotline is a national hotline um, and is open between 3pm and midnight um, for anyone who wishes to call. But um, Switchboard itself is based in um, in Victoria. So you would think that there's probably been a similar kind of increase in yes. demand throughout Australia. Yes, so that's QLife statistics, um, at, at least a 30%. And I think that's quite conservative. Wow. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and can you talk a little bit about what the concerns might have been that people have expressed? Yeah, most definitely. So there's been an increase in severity in the calls. Um, Some calls that would previously have come through have been conversational. Some have been um, coming out stories or concerns or just general wanting to speak with someone who's similarly identified. But I think um, a focus of the... um, the most recent calls has been in relation to um, the Marriage Law Postal Survey, um, which has been hitting the post boxes of people around the around the nation. Yeah, that's right. So I suppose in that context, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, how people who aren't part of the LGBTIQ community might be able to frame their discussions and conversations with people just so they avoid offence and distress. Yeah, we've, there's been um, in the media quite a lot of discussion around um, the Postal Survey and I think... I see a lot of terminology that can be quite distressing to members of the community. So, for example, um, it, um, I've seen headlines saying SSM, um, same-sex marriage and gay marriage. And I think terms like that can be unhelpful uh, because it is exclusionary to people within the community that um, that kind of language doesn't pick up. So, um, for example, the um, when you're saying same-sex marriage, doesn't just affect people who are necessarily same-sex attracted. So this, um, the marriage inequality at the moment will also impact people who are transgender, who are bisexual, who are intersex. So, for example, um, say you had a um, trans female um, who was in a relationship with a woman and they were... Their um, po- sorry, their um, birth certificate is with their gender that they were assigned at birth, which would be male. Um, at the moment, they would be able to get married, but if they were wanting to change their um, birth certificate to match their gender identity, that would be illegal mm-hmm. um, in the current political situation. So, I think it's it's bigger than um, people realise. Yeah, um, and in some of the terminology that's being thrown around, um, I think we're not encompassing the experiences of the entire LGBTIQ identified community. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Mm. Um, So if there are people who are distressed, can you tell me a little bit about what kinds of supports there are available for them? Yeah, most definitely. So I can tell you more about Victoria because that's where um, where we're based, but um, QLife is a national uh, hotline, but in terms of the local services that um, people can access, there are services coming out of Drummond Street um, in Carlton, 
So, for example, our Queer Space, which is a service for um, LGBTIQ-identified people. And it's a more... It's a higher service, I guess, than what um, Switchboard provides. So it's more um, clinical and more service-oriented and a bit more case management. Okay, so so Switchboard is more about peer support? Yes, most definitely. So it's more a conversation um, that you can have with a similarly identified person as opposed to um, a formal mental health um, service. But... It's providing that space to talk um, and having someone understanding on the end of the line. You don't have to call up and say, I'm experiencing symptoms of mental ill health. It's more... You can just talk about yeah. from your heart how you yeah. feel. Can, right. I just ha- can I have a chat to you, please? Mm-hmm. I'd okay. really like to just have that space. Yeah, but for people who are feeling pretty distressed and want a specific kind of support, then maybe Drummond Street might be appropriate. Yes, yeah, and, and if that's something that they can't provide, um, they're very well uh, placed to... Um, direct you in other other avenues. Okay, okay, that sounds good. So um, I, I want to just throw open to the rest of the people here any questions that you've got for Lady Gaga this morning. Um, to so to how does one get contact with Switchboard? So you can call <laughs> or alternatively they also offer web chat. So the number for those playing along at home is one 184 Alternatively, um, you can look Switchboard up on um, Facebook if you're wanting to also donate because um, at the moment, you know, as a Mm -hmm. not-for-profit and being under a lot of strain, um, if that's something people feel like they want to contribute to um, providing that space for people, then there is a handy donate button um, on the Facebook page. So that's something you could also look up. Yep. Okay. And are there other... Sorry, other questions? Yeah, you've mentioned this 30% increase in calls that you've Mm. experienced, Lady Gaga, and Mm. and some of that's been around people who feel excluded by the current debate. I I guess the the assumption of of many same-sex marriage advocates was that the debate would cause a rise in homophobic abuse. Mm. Uh, Have a number of your your increasing calls reflected that concern as well? Yes, and... um For example, I can speak to my own experience in this. Um, I came out two years ago and prior to that I was in relationship with men and marriage was an implicit... I was like, oh, I could always get married and I've wanted to get married since I was little and then all of a sudden um, I'm in a relationship with a woman and that right is denied me. And so, you know, that's a very basic um, start. But there are people who were calling saying, "I, I feel relatively resilient and... All of a sudden, I found myself really upset um, when I didn't think this was going to be something that would necessarily affect me. I, um, they're just some of the um, themes, I think, that have been coming through. Mm-hmm. There was a statistic quoted earlier this week about uh, the legalisation of same-sex marriage potentially leading to a drop in the number of attempted suicide by, mm. uh, by youth who are affected by those issues. Uh, do you get many people calling up who uh, are expressing thoughts of self-harm and wanting to die because of tensions and stress and abuse? Um, not many um, that I can speak to, no. I suppose that would be where some of the more clinical services would yes. come into play. Yeah, I, yeah. I think Lifeline is well-placed to deal with um, those kinds of, uh, of calls and immediate crisis and distress calls. Mm-hmm. Um, the counsellors who are on those lines are trained in that and um, (laughs) would probably be much um, 
better place to to receive those calls. Okay, that's fair enough. So, Lady Gaga, you're not just at Switchboard, are you? You've also completed a recent extravaganza called Crimson Tide, oh. which <laughs> was showing at the Melbourne Baths earlier this year. So that's a, a water ballet. Yes. Performance? Uh, what, yes. Yeah. Uh, we are Melbourne's least professional water ballet group. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you were able to fill a thousand uh, tickets at the Melbourne Baths just recently. Yeah, that was uh, quite good. Uh, we have a lot of period fans um, in Melbourne, which is wonderful. <laughs> so Crimson Tide is a water ballet about the menstrual period. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> told through the beauty of dance in the water. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Rehabilitating the period. Yeah, it's a good time. Yeah. Well done. It's a challenging task. <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, a lot, lot of fans, a lot of clan fans. Yeah, so it seems. Okay, thank you very much, Lady Gaga, for your contribution this morning. Most Love welcome. to have you back. Thank you for having me. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about today is with Dr. Vyom Sharma, who couldn't be with us last month because he was touring Las Vegas as a magician. I'm serious. Uh, and so <laughs> I would really like to hear about that as well. But maybe first up, Bjorn, you can tell us a little bit about your interest in pacemakers. Yes, y'all. This is something astounding I read. And when I first read it, I, could, I really had to check myself to go, did I really read that right? Basically, a few weeks ago, um, half a million Americans were asked to come in by the government for an upgrade because of fears that computer hackers could hack into them. Not their laptops, not their iPhones, like into them physically because 465,000 Americans have this particular type of heart pacemaker. And weeks ago, we discovered that there's a massive security flaw, meaning that it's actually really easy for people to hack into the device and potentially cause a heart attack. Um, I think we should probably define exactly what a pacemaker is first. So basically, a, a normal heart, I guess, beats at various speeds. If you're you know, cycling, you want it to go fast. If you're meditating, it goes slow. But some people, long story short, can get medical problems where the heart doesn't beat at the required speed. It goes too fast or too slow. So a pacemaker is this electronic device. It's about the size of a pack of cards that people have surgically inserted into their chest next to the heart. And its job is to tell the heart how fast to go. Now, actually quite old they were first developed in the 50s but until recently you so see you actually had to bring your pacemaker along with you to your cardiologist in the same way you'd go to a mechanic to get your, your car serviced so the cardiologist does their equivalent of checking the oil and the brake light but in the last couple of years um some of these news pace, pacemakers have this thing called remote monitoring so instead of actually having to go to your cardiologist right you can be at home have this device called a transmitter that you plug into your believe it or not like your wi-fi or your phone line and it transmits all the information to your doctor's office also the cardiologist can remotely control the settings of your pacemaker which is super convenient and it already sounds like we're into space age stuff but but it goes further than this because turns out on may 23rd some guy called billy on his blog writes up a post saying guys i think you, you can kind of hack this and and you read the blog you're going this looks incredibly amateurish it's on some free blog post site but he details very specifically the methods by which you can buy the hardware off ebay and for less than like a couple of grand you can easily hack into any of the brands that have remote monitoring of these uh, heart pacemakers. And so we hear kind of nothing about this until just a few weeks afterwards, the FDA, the Food Drugs Administration in America, puts out this mandatory recall of the St. Jude, um, um, uh, Jude's uh, pacemakers, which have this remote monitoring kind of uh, feature. And everyone has to come in and get their software or firmware more specifically updated, which is, I mean, just sounds absolutely crazy. Why do they have to go in? Couldn't they get it updated remotely? <laughs> well, 
because they, 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 you know what? They probably, they probably could. Um, except I think they wanted to allay any fears of more and more things being able to done uh, wirelessly from from distance. They honestly probably could have done it close up. I reckon. I don't know. I'm not really sure. A little bit like my iPad, where it tells me when it needs new software. You just yeah. have to plug it into the um, power source, and then it just does it overnight. Is but, that in, what happens? but in this case, your heart rate actually speeds up. And you just start sweating and going faint for no particular reason. <laughs> and if you ignore the notifications to update your f- pacemaker firmware, your heart briefly stops. No, I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to play magic. Do you know what? It's actually not that funny because in, in 0.03% of cases, your heart might actually uh, stop when they're doing the, the reboot for this. So, yeah. Now, here's the crazy thing. So this recall happens, right, in America. Yet there is the same brand of pacemaker in Australia. There's no recall that's happened here. The TGA is currently reviewing things, so to speak, and apparently St. Jude's is just uh, the the manufacturer of these uh, uh, pacemakers is not really not saying very much. Now, that sounds really kind of crazy in sci-fi, and uh, if there's any fans of Homeland listening, you might recall season two where um, I think Brody is uh, is commissioned by the terrorists to, to get the serial number off the vice president's pacemaker so they can induce his heart attack, as they do do and uh, and it sounded kind of crazy to me at the time but then i found out afterwards that vice president dick cheney actually had an uh, implantable cardiac defibrillator quite similar for our purposes here and he actually had that feature disabled in his uh in his cardiac device for that very specific reason this, this is likely dare i say it, to be an increasing problem because you know you read about uh, the futurists predictions for the future and they're talking about you know integration of our devices that we currently wear on our wrists into our biological systems and you know even perhaps closer to a, a very dark and paranoid future there's been an increase in recent years in the use of uh, implantable uh, deep brain stimulators as well which presumably might be vulnerable at the same sort of security flaws I'd and if you're talking occurred about to me oh my goodness yeah I mean, if you we'll want to stop your heart but uh, control your brain perhaps through <laughs> deep remote stimulation this is actually quite real because security concerns for these devices are are actually right at the back of people's minds. Very long list of priorities. There's a few reasons, I guess. I think one of the issues is that it just requires more advanced hardware and more kind of power. And there are ways that people, these companies can develop these technologies, but it's not a huge priority for them. We want you know, faster microprocessors on, on phones and things. No one really thinks about that when you're buying a pacemaker. You just want something that kind of works. But it's just so painfully easy to be able to exploit these vulnerabilities that I, I think people are really going to have to think about this now. And this is the new world we're in. I remember as, as a junior doctor, when, when somebody died, there was always an imperative to get the pacemaker out of the body because I think... You know, if, if somebody's cremated, they explode. But there was a there was a mythology going around at the time as well. And I still don't know whether this is true. That you know, the the pacemakers that they removed from people in Australia, for example, you know, uh, they they can't get reused locally, obviously. But I was under the impression that they were exported to the developing world and were sort of cleaned up and reimplanted over there. Popped wow. in the dishwasher. <laughs> Not in the dishwasher, no. <laughs> it's a second-hand market for these things. Hopefully that is using a more stringent process, yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, I was just blown away that there are... That it, 
this is happening in Australia right now. We're still kind of playing catch up. Man, we are we are behind. Yeah, we are behind. Let, let's let's keep an eye on this particular story, Viam. I want to hear more about it. I will let you know. My <laughs> radar is on for any pacemaker related events in Australia in the next few weeks. Excellent. I will let you know. Excellent. Um, we have a couple of minutes, so I want you to tell us a little bit about your magic show in North America. Are you able to tell us a bit about that? Yes. So that's right. So I performed with uh, my crew, the Gentlemen of Deceit, and uh, we went over to LA to do some shows, four nights of shows at the, at the Magic Castle, which is this amazing, quite reputable venue in LA. And uh, and so we did that for, for four days, which is a really interesting experience. We really had to adjust for our American audiences. Like, interestingly, they got all the Australian references. Every time you m- mention Vegemite or Dingo Stole My Baby, my God, it's like, it's like, wow, these guys are really up in their Australian references. Even Dustin Martin? No, 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 no. We did, we'll have to... Okay, that's for the second tour, for the comeback tour. We've got to keep that in mind. Do you know what they were not down with? Like the self-deprecating humour we have here? No, didn't really fly as well. Turns out you just have to be awesome and tell everyone you're awesome. Yeah, and so well, we did and it was good. Oh, that sounds really good. The other thing you did, which I've never heard about, and obviously this must always happen with every professional group, there's a conference sort of program mm. that you that you attend. So, you know, as doctors we attend conferences as magicians, you also attend conferences, and that had never occurred to me as a possibility. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I know. You'd never think it, but there is legit uh, a conference and convention, and so roughly 600 magicians from all over the world came to Vegas for this convention, and it was incredibly entertaining, as I'm sure you can kind of imagine, but surprisingly, there was some, some... bigger truth bombs dropped there was this guy who presented some fascinating research on genuine academic research on what audiences like and don't like and we like to think as magicians we've got it kind of all figured out and the results really like split the room like it turns out the number one thing that audiences hate are old tricks which like 70 percent of the people in the room are doing things with like rings that link and unlink and you should have just my god the, the tension in the room was are like you, what palpable. about cutting ladies in half is that still a big thing that is like, you know, that's just one of those things that's just really hard to do well. Sure and so <laughs> very few people do it. People out of touch with the, uh, with the current kind of social political zeitgeist are still, are still doing that badly. But, uh, yeah, that, that's not so popular anymore, I've got to oh, say. Oh, strangely so, enough. Any other papers of interest presented at this conference? You know, what's the latest in magic research telling <laughs> us? You know, do people present new tricks or...? But people do present either uh, particularly new methods to do tricks. So there was a really cool segment on 3D printers and how you can build, use that to build specific props and things, which is kind of cool. But the, one of the really fascinating uh, workshops that I had was really small. It was a, a guy discussing uh, kind of old and hidden gems and these methods from before the turn of the century. And a couple of the methods uh, this guy mentioned to do some of these tricks were like, wow, that solves so many problems that magicians use. Crazy methods these days, including you know cameras and electronics to solve. There was just some really bold, forward-thinking magicians back in the you know, the eighteen nineties. It turns out. So yeah, I walked away with some uh, with some some new tech that I'm going to deploy in, uh, in my next few shows for sure. <laughs> so what 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 were magicians doing in the eighteen nineties? They were. You know what they were that they're not now. Cool. They were. They were <laughs> cool. Like in the eighteen nineties, if you were a good magician, did an amazing trick, like people would hold you up on their shoulders and parade you down the streets. Like you were, you were a wizard. There was no internet uh, you know, to explain things. It was just you were you were a king. And now you're just some guy on YouTube. 
I like going to conferences because there's usually lots of trade exhibits. So, mm. like, did you pick yourself up a new wand or anything from the stalls whilst you're away? What sort of paraphernalia are they hocking at the magic convention? I am ashamed to say I spent far too much money in the uh, in the dealer's room. Yeah, so there are always people every year coming up with new and amazing either just publications in terms of books, uh, DVDs in terms of instructions on techniques that we can use. Some people sell trick props even. That happens too. And it is a really bizarre thing. Like from a distance, it would look like a food stall. And, oh, people are congregating here. It must be some good stuff. And, yeah, it turns out it's, uh, it's something else completely. It's a, it's a bizarre feeling. Yeah. Oh, that's super awesome. Do you, do you have to use a special pet shop to get your rabbits and doves and things? I, you know, I'm not a huge uh, animal magic uh, person advocate, but no, it turns out it's uh, you can you can get your animals and pets from anywhere. It's the rigorous training you have to put them through, <laughs> which is uh, which is the clincher. So no special shop, just special training. Of course, of course. Thank you very much. We have uh, another topic of discussion on this extremely chock full um, morning today. Dr. Moto is going to talk about his recent experience of being both a doctor, which he's been for a long time, and yet also a patient, which is not something that we all have an opportunity to experience very frequently. Can you tell me what what happened? Thank you, Perry. Um, Over the past five years or so, I've developed a a mild musculoskeletal condition, um, and it's a relatively recently identified condition. So um, how best to treat it and uh, how best to treat it in order to prevent long-term outcomes is not very well known. So um, I've been umming and ahhing about doing something about it, but it seems like there's a bit of a dichotomy. You can either go down option A or option B. Um, and I remain undecided. I thought I'd just wait it out. Um, the surgeons are saying you should do an operation. Um, the physios are saying don't touch the surgeons, do physio instead. Um, and then... Um, I was told maybe about two, three years ago, um, there was a clinical trial being run where people were being randomized to one of these two interventions. So you either have surgery or you have physiotherapy and you can't choose which one it is that you, um, that, that you had to do. That's the nature of um, a randomized trial so as to remove bias um, from the trial findings. Now, being a doctor slash clinician, um, as well as more recently being an academic researcher, I thought I would put um, um, money Use in my own mouth, so to speak, and, and see what it's like to participate in a clinical trial, yeah. as well as through that process um, to uh, be a patient. Um, it's been an extremely revealing and insightful experience, I have to say. I mean, I remember um, as a medical student, one of my lecturers telling us, um, you know, if you ever get the chance to spend a night in hospital, it'll teach you a lot about um, the patient experiences, uh, the patient experience and um, empathy and just how um, difficult it is um, to be in a place of suffering and um, relying on somebody to look after you. Um, And I remember actually about um, when I was participating in the trial, um, I was randomised to the surgical arm and the surgery arm and uh, you know I remember in the sort of month or so leading up to it I was actually starting to feel a bit nervous and a bit apprehensive about going under I've, I've never been under a general anaesthetic before I've never passed out before I've never had a blackout as they call it I've never lost consciousness full stop really um, and you know just worrying about what it'll feel like and um, you know whether I'll wake up and my mind will be wiped and you know I would thrash around in the recovery area some patients sometimes do even sometimes when patients are 
going under um, the excitatory um, properties of um, anesthetic inducers such as propofol can make people thrash around a bit as well. I wondered if I was going to do that or whether I might lose continence and all these icky things. Um, I've also come to the realization that, and, and it pains me to say this actually, but um, I also came to the realization that when you're a clinical trial participant, you get looked after really, really well. Why does it pain you to say it? That sounds like because, the way things should go. Because is it such a contrast between the way that any normal patient might be treated? Is that what you're saying? Because um, in everyday clinical care, we could do better. The fact of the matter is we could do better. And um, I don't think um, it's limited to any one particular specialty or any one form of intervention in all interventions and in all um, disciplines. Um, I think we can do better. Um, so, for instance, um, as part of the clinical trial, they take the concept of informed consent extremely, extremely importantly. And, you know, being a researcher, we've all had to go through accredited um, what we call good clinical practice um, training. And they teach you, oh, they, 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 and they also examine you at the end of it. Um, they provide a course and you get examined on what constitutes um, ethical practice, ethical research um, and ethical informed consent obtaining. Um, and that's a big contrast to our clinicians. So, you know, for yeah. example, when I was a resident, and this is a long time ago, maybe things have improved, but I was a surgical resident and consenting for things that I couldn't even pronounce, really. <laughs> well, that, that, I think, highlights one of the differences between clinical trial practice and clinical practice because, you know, we all, as junior doctors, would have had to consent patients for various things. But the degree to which... Uh, informed consent seems to be required in clinical trials trumps by a significant uh, factor anything that I've ever seen done when a surgeon's been consenting a patient for a procedure. So if it's if it's ethically appropriate to do it in a clinical trial, uh, I do wonder about our the rigour with which we apply these principles in clinical practice. Absolutely, and I think we all have stories about these. I mean, I might say something a little bit more harrowing and potentially irreverent over the radio waves but I remember being a um, junior resident um, in a big metro hospital and um, I was um, um, part of my duty was to consent the people going through an afternoon um, uh, dilatation and keratage list so it's a procedure that they perform in um, gynecology it's very brief but you know um, it's to um, clear out um, uh, uh, materials of conception or other um, uh, potentially pathological um, material from um, a woman's uterus and you know there will be a big waiting room with about a dozen um, uh, sort of uh, stretches all divided by just curtains and you just had to go from one to the next to the next and get consent very very quickly um, and um, uh, this was um, in a um, Melbourne suburb where it was extremely ethically diverse and demographically diverse. Um, half of the patient didn't speak English. Um, most of the patients were extremely um, nervous and anxious and I can totally understand why. Um, there were very young patients as well and um, you just had to get through um, the, the, the program and if you held up the theatre list you got in a lot of trouble you know, for delaying the progress and I just found myself being so ethically contrived at that point and just thinking to myself I never really really want to do this. Mm. 
So your recent experience, hopefully, quite a contrast. My recent experience has been fantastic, you know, and being a researcher as well, you know, um, you have to um, inform the um, patient roughly about what the trial is. You have to screen them over the phone to make sure that they're eligible. They get given this uh, pretty standardised document called a patient information and consent form, or we abbreviate it to a PICF, which is usually about 10 to 20 pages of um, information all in layperson terms about what the pres- what it is, what the trial is, why we are doing it, um, what are the chances of success, what will happen if you do it, what will happen if you don't do it, what the other options are, etc., etc., etc. Even goes to the extent of saying, okay, so if I participate in this trial and let's say next year some new finding comes out about this condition and this trial is no longer relevant or it needs to be tweaked, what will happen then? I mean, it's comprehensive information every patient should be informed about before they undergo consent to undergo something unrelated to their bodies, right? And, you know, I just found that was so important. So that helped you in your experience of undergoing the particular procedure that you went through because you felt like you really knew all the possible outcomes beforehand? Absolutely. I think it's also worth noting that those documents that are signed by participants in uh, clinical trial settings also undergo rigorous uh, assessment through hospital ethics committees um, for approval before the project is even able to be undertaken. So can actually be a problem, the rigour with which ethics committees <laughs> yes. review those documents. I mean... I do clinical trials in people living with dementia and the ethics committee require us on the one hand to word the documents so that they are understandable by people living with dementia. On the other hand, they insist on making the documents so comprehensive that... uh, that com- that comprehension is often deeply compromised. Mm, it can be a tricky balance. Absolutely. Um, but the rigour w- with which they take um, ethical um, informed consenting is um, just a real eye-opener. Mm. And in good clinical trial practice, they also advise their guidelines about um, how people um, should not consent within 24 hours of given this information so they have had ample time to think about their options um, and you know some um, places even ask the participants and, and give them a little quiz basically to make sure they understand the materials provided. Now I'm a clinician. I know I'm shooting myself in the foot when I say this, but we, we just don't do this in clinical practice and, it, and it's kind of sad. And um, this is absolutely no excuse, but um, look, I can um, only underst- I can understand that um, you know if clinical practice all went to that rigor, you know the system would just get bogged down. It just won't run. You know, all of a sudden our theatre list will you know be providing um, care for twenty patients and it'll drop down to one. Mm. It's a big ethical dilemma, isn't it? I, w- I think you should revisit that actually at a subsequent time. So I think yeah, let's talk about ethics and in clinical practice and ethics um, and and research. Let's put it on the agenda. Can we do that? Absolutely, yeah. But yeah, I'll probably just wrap up by saying, you know, I myself have had a really good experience participating in a clinical trial. This is not a plug to um, listeners out there to consider, you know, um, helping out with research and advancing medical science and innovation. This is just my own anecdotal um, experience of what has happened and, you know, just being um, really well looked after. Oh, it's good to hear. Um, we're very fortunate to have SK here talking, not in fact about Macbeth and archetypes in Macbeth, but actually about zombie films, which, to be honest, 
I'm so interested in. Please tell me, what have you got to say? Well, we'll talk about Macbeth on another day. One yeah. of the beauties of Macbeth is that at the end, pretty much everybody dies. So, you know, it does lend itself to a zombie adaptation, potentially, <laughs> or, or, a, or a sequel, perhaps. That's the next um, Macbeth Returns, is that? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, yeah. Uh, yeah, why zombie movies? I, I guess uh, you, you can look at this topic either from a, a psychological or psychoanalytic perspective, or you can look uh, at it as a sociocultural perspective. And I, I want to sort of take both views this morning but it's pretty much undeniable just from a a casual straw poll of movies and television over the past 10 years that there's been a a massive resurgence in popularity in the zombie genre and it's it's amazing in fact that there is an entire zombie subgenre of horror films and that it's so prolific you know dating back to the 1930s i think was the first zombie film and then the the george romero uh, night of the living dead uh, series sparked off a resurgence in the 60s but again in the post 2001 era uh, and I'll come back to that. Uh, zombies seem to have taken off once more. It's become a global phenomenon. You've got The Walking Dead, you've got the World War Z franchise, and this fascination that we have with zombies doesn't seem to be reserved for the big or small screens either. You've got entrepreneurs cashing in with warehouse-based life-action games That's where right. you can Actually, kill that zombies. Reminds me, it's not just in warehouses. I was walking home, minding my own business, walking through a park a few months ago, and then I realised there were these people shambling up to me and past me and all of them seemed to be wearing rags and, you know, spattered with blood and I thought this is not normal for Melbourne on a sunny afternoon. No, Melbourne and Sydney have organised annual zombie walks. I think the the (laughs) Sydney zombie walk had about 6,000 participants shambling across the bridge one year. You've got these large-scale role-playing games. Some are crowd-funded, some are businesses. Uh, There's interactive zombie running apps. I have to uh, admit to having used zombie run myself. (laughs) Do you have to keep your arms stretched out in front of you and do you have to moan and No, no, the idea is you're running from zombies and there's a narrative plays through the earphones about where the next (laughs) zombies are and what you have to do and trust me, if there's anything that makes you want to run, it's a zombie. And there's also zombie apocalypse survival courses that you can take as well. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, you, you can you can go out for a weekend and learn zombie survival techniques. If you go into any sort of disposalist store or, or survivalist's warehouses, I think they have in the States, you'll be able to buy zombie-specific uh, survival equipment. There's books being written on how to survive the zombie apocalypse. So next to your can of broad beans or baked beans or whatever it is, you've got like a, what, a, what, a club? Uh, a machete, golf club, <laughs> you know, pros and cons to the various types of melee weapons, peripatum. But this has gone so far as, as to see the United States Centers for Disease Control in 2013 issuing detailed advice on how to survive a zombie apocalypse as part of a government push to prepare the nation for a public health pandemic. What? The CDC puts out this online sort of newsletter monthly and, and the usual online monthly bulletin attracts about a 1,000 hits. The zombie edition received more than 26 million And this followed in America again a a 2012 military training exercise conducted by the Department of Homeland Security where hundreds of military and law enforcement and medical personnel responded to a Hollywood-style zombie attack as part of their emergency response training. Okay, go ahead. Michigan State University (laughs) uh, offered a seven-week class in surviving the zombie apocalypse. I love a good liberal arts degree. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, why are we faced with this phenomenon? Let's deal with the psychoanalytic stuff first. Okay. 
I mean, uh, there's a lot that's been written about psychoanalysis and horror, but that the particular fascination of the zombie genre, it is said, is that zombies underline the inevitability of death. You know, there's one thing that all human beings experience, one thing which is the great leveller that occurs to us regardless of age, uh, gender, sex, creed, religion, we all die and nothing we can do will alter that fact. So in the post-zombie apocalyptic world, it doesn't matter if you're a multi-billionaire or a pauper or a disenfranchised woman of colour. You know, you're in there with the rest and you can't escape death. And you might be able to hide for a while, as Dawn of the Dead taught us. In, in a supermarket. In the companies of a, of yeah. a suburban shopping centre in mm. the consumer environment. In fact, one of the analyses that's been done of Romero's uh, Dawn of the Dead was that it was a critique of con- our consumer culture. You know, we hide from all of these external problems that assail us by burying ourselves in our sort of material and consumeristic pursuits. But the inevitability of death, the fact that you can't outrun death and death always catches up with you. There's never going to be a happy ending in a zombie movie. That's something you learn fairly early on. So there's the psychoanalytic perspective. Socioculturally, you know, you can track our fascination with the zombie genre uh, from the end of World War II, roughly. Uh, And, you know, our collective visions of the future prior to World War II were sort of more utopia than dystopia. But what the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki taught us was that there is the potential for the large-scale extinction of uh, life on Earth and uh, the disturbing capacity for human violence that uh, that these visions of terror uh, generated. And specifically, you know, we've become more fascinated in the World War II era with scenarios in, in literature and film that describe uh, mass-scale destruction and what might become of humanity after that. Uh, We see a spike yet again in zombie movies following 9-11 in uh, in 2001. Uh, The the fascination with the war on terror and the fact that there are others out there who are not like ourselves who want to destroy us. We actually reached uh, peak zombie in 2008. That was the year in which the highest number of uh, zombie-related movies uh, were produced. And perhaps it's no coincidence that 2008 was the uh, the start of the GFC as well. Mm. So, you know, these uh, thoughts that the world as we know it might collapse and we might be thrown back on our own survival instincts. And you see that with the rise of the so-called survivalist movement in the US as well. You know, mm. there's, there's reality TV programs nowadays about these survivalists and their uh, way of life. Although I've never seen them put zombies on a little tropical island for the survivors to... Well, actually, with, really. actually, oh, really? there's a movie that I saw uh, about a month ago called Resort with a Z, and right. it was uh, set in South Africa following the successful containment of a zombie apocalypse. Right. And the idea was that remaining zombies were sort of corralled and used for hunting as a recreational pursuit on a resort island, uh, peripatum. So there you go. <laughs> you do go. I should get out more and learn more about the, the, the recent zombie movies that but are you know, we have, we have these scenarios that deal with the large-scale breakdown of public order, and, mm. you know, that's, that's a fear that lives with, with Western society, and the zombie apocalypse is a, is a good... Uh, paradigm or template for that. If you look at how some of these fears about the external other and fear of difference are explored in the genre, uh, the zombie 
genre. I can nearly created a new word there. Look at World War Z. There's a scene that's set in, in Israel and a massive mm. wall, you know, perhaps symbolically, has been constructed around Jerusalem yep. to keep the zombies out. And we see literally a pile of zombies crawling up the wall to try and get into our safe enclave. And I think to audiences, this possibly resonates with these unrational fears we have about immigration and border security and uh, so-called illegal immigration. You know, we see, we see zombies or the other as uh, unwanted refugees who will steal our resources. Perhaps also the zombie genre uh, raises points about our fascination and fixation on technology and how technology tends to depersonalise us and rob us from uh, our own inherent human connections. And perhaps the, the best and certainly the funniest example I've seen of this would be in Shaun of the Dead, the very opening scene, I think, whilst the opening credits are running, you see uh, Simon Pegg walking to his local shop and in the background coming down an alley are these sort of lumbering, shambling teenagers uh, initially in shadow and they emerge into light and you can see they're just immersed in their devices. They've got their MP3 players on and they're bopping along to those. Simon Pegg goes to the milk bar and walks back, uh, largely unaware that the zombie apocalypse is happening in the background. Uh, and, you know, real zombies are emerging and he fails to notice the difference between these real zombies and the teenagers with their MP3 players. So it, it makes does... makes me want to go back and watch that movie again now. There's, there's many good reasons to re rewatch that movie. But, uh, you know, the, the zombie uh, genre is deep and fruitful should you wish to explore it. <laughs> now, now, I know that, that what I'm saying may not uh, come across as intuitively resonant with the people in the room or indeed the audiences, so feel free to try and knock me down on any of these points. Uh, Parts of this resonate. I guess the, the survivalist fantasy resonates. The murdering psychopath fantasy, I can kind of... Yeah, I can kind of see why someone would think that's a cool thing. What I don't get are the, the zombie march people. Like, what is that fantasy? Wanting to be the zombie, like, and walk around... Oh, you know, this mindless, like half, half machine, half flesh thing. Like, what, what are they trying well, to do? I don't know. Maybe it's in part recollection that we are being dehumanised by, by our society, and in many ways, it's the ultimate wish fulfilment, isn't it? I guess there are certain attractions to being a zombie on the face of it. You know, the, because we have this fear of death being converted, if you like, does raise the possibility, however shambling and decaying that might be, of eternal life. But uh, but there you go. If you're a zombie, you live forever unless you get double tapped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, SK. Very thought-provoking. Mm. <laughs> we have just about a minute and a half left before we are all done, sadly, for this week's edition of Radiotherapy. Lady Cargo, you did want to add a couple of more words just um, in response to the section that you talked about earlier today. If I may, I think a lot of people um, have been asking me and some of my friends um, what are things that they can do that is useful um, while we're talking about the marriage law postal survey. And I think um, some things that you can do, obviously, is vote in the survey. Um, hopefully, yes, but I'm not here to tell you what to do. Yeah, that's right. Everybody, uh, you need to vote. Yes. Have you, let your voice be heard. Please do. Put it in the post box. Um, and then there's also ways in which you can make your support visible. So, for example, a lot of people are um, putting out T-shirts. Um, so one that comes to mind is The Kids Are All Right, which is in support of uh, Rainbow Families, which is um, a not-for-profit that is being hugely impacted again by, by this survey. Um, 
talking to your communities and your friends, taking up the fight for the LGBTIQ people, it is very difficult self-advocating all of the time as well as emotionally draining. So if you can take up the fight as an ally, that is that would be really nice. Noted. Um, supporting your friends, checking in, making sure that they are all right. Um, it's also sometimes a bit hard to ask for help when you're feeling a little bit low. Um, and if you have the means, please make sure you donate to some of the services that we talked about today um, or call up and have a chat. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Lady Gaga. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 